The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're celebrating the centenary of one of the birth of one of the most influential figures in mid-20th century popular literature, that is Jack Kerouac, the master of what we've just been describing as spontaneous bop prosody. And I'm joined, I'm pleased to say, by the biographer Holly George Warren, who's working now on what should be the definitive biography of Kerouac, due out in a year or two. Her fingers are crossed there, you can't see on the podcast, but... <laughs> and also Simon Warner, who's the author of, among other things, Kerouac on Record, a literary soundtrack, and Text and Drugs and Rock and Roll, the Beats and Rock Culture. Welcome both. Talk to young people today, and many of them won't really have heard of Kerouac, where do you think his reputation stands a hundred years from his birth? I actually think there are quite a few young, younger generation folks who are familiar with Kerouac. Maybe they haven't even read On the Road, but they've been listening to music in which Kerouac's name is dropped. Everything from, you know, American groups like The Hold Steady and people like Lana Del Rey who mentioned the beats and and I think people today the younger people that are into music by different artists that are into Kerouac and on the road then go down the rabbit hole checking out who is this guy etc so maybe it's not as widely known as say in the boomers those notorious boomers days or even the gen xers but I, I do think his name is quite well known well, what's your assessment of it son well I, I, th- I tend to agree with Holly in the sense that when you think about Kerouac's influence on the literary world, I many think he has had a, 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 an influence on that scene. But, but in many ways, his, his ideas, his style has cascaded down to that rock culture about which I've written and which Holly has written about too. And there seems to be an immediacy, an energy, an excitement about his writing that has turned on everyone from Dylan to artists of today like Hooray for the Riff Raff, he seems to have a set of visions, a set of literary messages that uh, everyone from rockers to rappers to country stars to punks have taken on board. And so in, in some ways, his reputation as a literary giant might have been reduced a little bit by the fact he is so well received as a popular figure. And of course, in the world of literature, that, that can be problematic because uh, if you're too popular, you're not as serious or as important as you'd like to be. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that that I mean, both of you have reached for the, you know, that his influence endures in pop music, you know, if you like, rather than on the page. Is he the first, the first writer of whom this can really be said? Well, I mean, I think Holly will have some thoughts on this, but it's it's surprising just how much literature has filtered into popular music making you know if we're, if, if we're going back to the greek myths or the or the celtic legends you know these particular stories have fed into the rock experience and we, we and we could talk that up further but i think in some ways the 
the buzz, the hipness, the phraseology. I think the language of Kerouac has, has, has really suited literate songwriters like Dylan, maybe Lennon to an extent, but certainly Patti Smith, Tom Waits and these sort of individuals. Do you think, Holly, there have been other writers who've affected music in that way? You know, I'm racking my brain and I can't think of any. I mean, there are people that Kerouac referenced then people like Patti Smith would reference like Rimbaud, Baudelaire, um, some of the poets. But as far as a novelist, I can't think of anyone else that has had such an influence. And that could be changing. The world changes very quickly. But I would say in the past 40, 50 years, Kerouac is the guy. And I think it's also worth saying, Sam, that uh, in 1999, if I can just plug some of Holly's work, she produced a book called The Rolling Stone Book of the Beats. Very inspirational to me. She brought into play all sorts of figures like Richard Hale and Van Morrison, etc., etc. And they inspired me to do further research on, on these interconnections. So I suppose in some ways we're responsible not for what's happened culturally, but at least for the critical stuff that's emerged on the side. Yeah. And I think, too, the other weird thing about it, Simon, is that, which I discovered when I did that book back in the late 90s, is the range of artists who have been influenced by Kerouac's work. I mean, it's not just one genre. You know, it, as you mentioned before, it's people that came from punk, from post-punk, you know, Sonic Youth, huge advocate, you know, but then bands like, you know, Grateful Dead, who hung out with Neil Cassidy, Jack Kerouac's muse, I would say, and sidekick and a character in many of his books. So Yes, I mean, you, you, you've got people like Jim Morrison all the way through to Death Cab for Cutie. To Beastie Boys. To Beast, you know? That's right, the Beastie Boys. And, and, and it's worth thinking that if we read popular... Uh, youth culture as a series of subcultures that fall out with one another, whether we've got mods and rockers or hippies and punks. One of the astonishing things about the beat narrative is that it has managed to appeal to people of different ideological positions, the peace and love people and also the agro poets of the, of the 70s and 80s. So it's, uh, it, it's intriguing how beat has sort of vaulted those subcultural divides. Yeah, when, I mean... This subculture things, I know I came to Kerouac at I guess exactly the right age because I read on the road, you know, when I was travelling, when I was 18 and was electrified by the energy of the prose and the excitement and the, that, the kind of grandeur of it as well. How did you guys come to Kerouac? Same way that you did. I was growing up in a small town in North Carolina where there was not a lot of stuff going on, to quote Lou Reed's song. But anyway, I was about 16 when I read On the Road, and it totally changed my life. It, I already had kind of an idea that I wanted to be a writer, and then after reading that, I'm like, I definitely have to be a writer. I definitely have to get out of my hometown. Little did I know, Kerouac actually spent time with his sister only about two hours away from where I lived. Who knew? But anyway, as you said, the prose was so exciting. This call to the road really affected me, and I, I started hitchhiking in the 1970s, and thank God I survived. But, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but I think I, I came to it, Sam, from a, a slightly different angle in that... I encountered a book called Kerouac by the great Anne Charters in the early 1970s. She was the first person to write an extended biography of uh, of the man. Uh, and I'm sure 
Holly is very conscious of her legacy and her influence. And when she told me the Kerouac story, I was fascinated that an autobiographical life could be so entwined with a fictional body of work. And, and as soon as I read Charters, I knew that, you know, Ginsburg was represented and Burroughs and Cassidy and Carolyn Cassidy and so on. And that opened up a, a world for me that led me to eventually On the Road and all the Kerouac books. But it, it was biography that got me into this world of reading. That's interesting you say that, Simon, because as soon as I finished On the Road, I did read Ian Charter's biography, which, interestingly enough, was published by Straight Arrow, which was Rolling Stone magazine's publishing company, which, you know, fast forward uh, many, many years later, I would go to work there and run the book division there, Rolling Stone Press, and that's the company that I did the Rolling Stone Book of the Beats for. So it's it's crazy, the synchronicity in, in the Kerouac world. Also, when I was at university, at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, I had a very cool professor who, it turns out, had been kind of an apprentice to Ginsburg. His name was Gordon Ball, uh, incredible guy. And, you know, so I kept learning more. It, it, my journey was just incredibly occupied by these people in the beat world. So it just continued to happen. And he brought together a symposium at UNC Chapel Hill with Ginsburg, Peter Olofsky, William Burroughs. So I literally got to go to readings by them when I guess I was about 19 at that point and go to the after party, which was cool. So of course, I end up in New York City, living around the corner from Allen Ginsberg. So it's, you know, on the St. Mark's Poetry Project around the corner. So it, it was weird. It was almost kind of like reading that book kind of set you on this path and a little magnet kept bringing elements of it to you and making you realize this is still vital literature and I've been spreading the word ever since. <laughs> do, 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 do you think that the fact that uh, beat literature and particularly Kerouac's work was so autobiographical, do you think it made it more more interesting, Holly? I think it did for me. I think it made it intriguing because, I mean, I would switch back and forth between, say, reading Kerouac and reading William Burroughs, which there, it wasn't as autobiographical, but there was such such a strong element of his personality just from going to see him do readings and conversations with Patti Smith and things like that in New York. And, you know, just his voice was so authentic to who he was. So and so I think that's part of Kerouac, too, is that authenticity of his voice coming through in his prose and also his characters as I've discovered as I've been doing lots and lots of research for this biography I'm working on you know they were romanticized of course as we know the male figures get a lot more ink and a lot more texture than the female characters and things like that whereas in his real life I think Kerouac did surround himself with very strong women very um, multi-dimensional women so I, that doesn't quite come through in some of his writing so would say it's not completely autobiographical but quite a degree and then you know there's even going back to Hemingway and some of his you know who was another influence and Thomas Wolfe another influence on Kerouac so I think there were precedents that affected him to want to do his autobiographical novels I think he called them. And I, and I, th I think also that um, it's worth making the connection with that sort of candor of the singer-songwriter in the late 60s and early 70s. I, I, I get a strong feeling that the Beats, and Kerouac particularly, gave an opportunity for people to tell the stories of their own lives. And 
the West Coast songwriters like Joni Mitchell, Stephen Stills, a whole bunch of them, including Bob Dylan, they, I think, gained the confidence to write about themselves and their lives as a result of, of reading the beats. I mean, that, 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 that's not a, a proven thesis, but it's certainly a, a hypothesis. But that, that question of, of how autobiographical it was, how romanticised and fictionalised it was, and also actually a point you allude to here, Holly, about you know the influence of women. Because certainly, I would say by the standards of today, but I think even by the standards of then, the treatment of women in the novel I mean, in On the Road, you know, he's constantly, Dean is getting women pregnant and then dropping them by the side of the road, stealing all their money and dropping them by the side of the road. You know, he, he behaves appallingly. And there doesn't seem to be much condemnation in the novel for them. Is he sort of right for cancellation? Is that something that he was consciously ironising or was he, you know, was he kind of misogynist? I don't think he was misogynist. You mean Dean, the Dean character, well, the Dean character. or the Sal, the Sal Paradise, you know, Kerouac character? I don't think you could call him misogynistic. I think, you know, the to be honest with you, the Dean character kind of set the template for the whole rock and roll, you know, love him and leave him, groupie, you know, that whole lifestyle, the rock and roll lifestyle. I think, but at the same time. If you just think about these women, they were they were out there on the road too. They were part of the scene. And I think again, this was a period in American history and culture, and I'm sure in the same in the UK, when uh women were not respectable women <laughs> were not out on the road. They weren't hanging out in jazz bars, clubs, um, they weren't taking up with crazy hitchhiking guys, you know. So I think even though these characters were not as multidimensional as and and it, as you know, the the dean and the south characters, just the fact of their presence, kind of like I think the light bulb goes off with young readers back in the day when that was not the norm. But I, I, th- I think it's also worth acknowledging, Sam, that 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 there are problems with those mid-century books. I mean, I I, I returned to On the Road a year or two ago and read it with great hunger and 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 loved it again a piece of travelogue, a piece of living, vibrant, rolling America brought to life on the page. But then when they go down to Mexico, there is the exploitation of younger girls. There is the kind of treatment of Mexico as, as, as a colony on, on, on the American uh, landscape. There, there are some very weird, dubious things going on later in the book, which uh, I don't think would be acceptable today. And perhaps they weren't then, as you imply, Sam. Yeah. Now, obviously, we've talked a lot about On the Road. And this year, in fact, Penguin is, in honour of the centenary, is issuing a kind of handsome new cloth-bound edition. We've had, you know, it's routinely republished. I think it probably hasn't been out of print since it was published. But for a lot of people, that will be the only Kerouac book that they know, except maybe, you know, the Dharma Bums. I mean, is he kind of a one-book author, do you think? Or is that to to scant his reputation or misemphasize it? I I think I would say that that he he is not a... Uh, a one book author. I mean, it's it's almost hard to count how many books Kerak has produced because there was there are so many texts that are still in cold storage and versions of texts that might come out, books come out posthumously, and so on. So he, he he's got quite a gallery of work to his credit. But there there are other great books in there too. Uh, you mentioned the Dharma Bam Sam, which is the kind of often mentioned as the second book after On the Road, but. Uh, 
I loved his first book. I loved The Town and the City, which came out in 1950. It wasn't particularly successful. It was a, a Wolfian novel, not in the Tom Wolfe sense, but in the Thomas Wolfe sense. A, gr a great galaxy of American life captured in the first half of the century. And then there's also... I would say The Subterraneans, which I absolutely adore. It's more of a novel, novella than a novel. It's not that long, but it, it explores that world of interracial relationships at a time when they were being widely frowned upon, even possibly illegal in, in, in many American states. So The Subterraneans is, is another one I would mention, but I'm sure Holly's got ones she'd like to bring into play too. Yeah, definitely those. And living in the Northeast right now, where we've been experiencing lots and lots of snow, I can tell you um, I love Maggie Cassidy, which is this wonderful kind of coming-of-age novel that he wrote about his youth growing up in Lowell, Massachusetts. There's a lot of snow, a lot of snow shoveling, a lot of his trudging through the snow to meet with his first love, his first huge crush as a teenager, who was, again, based on a real-life person, uh, Mary Carney, who lived in the Irish part of town, and Kerouac lived in the French-Canadian part of town. But it's it's a lovely, very evocative, descriptive book. And I'm also reading Kerouac's journals right now in my research, which I've been very fortunate to have access to. And literally, you do see that, um, you know, he referred back to these journals he kept as a teenager. And I'm literally able to track certain things from the journals in Maggie Cassidy, for example. But I agree with the ones Simon pointed out. Also, interestingly, it's a, it's a dense book. And there's some, it goes between kind of horror and grandeur, but Big Sur, for example, which today, I mean, he was so ahead of his time as far as his adoration of nature and his nature writing and his respect for his descriptions and respect for the earth and you know, his botany uh, that comes across in there mixed with his spiritual pursuits. And the guy was definitely a seeker, again, very influential, you know, on the counterculture. But not too long after World War II, he was learning um, from Gary Snyder, the great poet and Buddhist, about Buddhism and went on this search for Buddhism. So I have friends that are very interested in that part of his writing, too. So, you know, I think... They apply to different pockets of uh, readership, but there are other books, I think, that still are well-received and have lots of value. And I, I, th I think also that there is a, a sort of sense that uh, Kerouac is, is a man of contradictions and paradoxes because he's perhaps painted as a sort of wild man, a wild rebel of the road. But in all sorts of ways, he was a very tender, humane individual, as, as uh, Holly says, he, he had a love of nature. He actually had a love of human beings. He, he, he was very connected with the, the low down, the lowly in society. He might have romanticised them, but I think he had a, a very humanitarian spirit. He was also, we were talking about women a little bit earlier on, he was maybe a lever of women to some extent, not on the same scale as, uh, as Dean Moriarty, but he was also drawn to women in all sorts of ways. He, his mother was so important in his life. His wives had difficult connections with Kerouac. He also had a difficult connection with Jan Kerouac, his, his one daughter. But uh, I think he was, and this comes across in much of his writing, I think he, he had quite a, 
a, a humane spirit. He was not a hard, tough man. He was quite sentimental. He was nostalgic. He had all sorts of colours uh, to, to, to his personality. You mentioned, Holly, his, his religion, because it's something that we don't often automatically think of in connection with Kerouac. But it's something that's pretty profound in the work, isn't it? I mean, and one of those paradoxes is, how do you get to be a Catholic and a Buddhist all at the same time? Right. And, you know, again, he grew up in a French-Canadian neighborhood in Lowell, Massachusetts. He didn't speak English till he was six. And the Catholic Church was a very crucial part of that community. So it was, you know, almost like served as a community center for the Kerouac family and others in their neighborhood. So it was ingrained in him very, very young. Also, horribly, his older brother, who he idolized, died horribly over, you know, a few years of illness and died when he was eight years old, I believe it was. He witnessed members of the church, nuns coming, uh, the priest coming and praying with with his brother who was dying. So, I mean, I think all of this had such a major imprint on Kerouac. But at the same time, he did leave Catholicism behind and was a seeker of uh, new spiritual thought, you know, Buddhism, Eastern religion really appealed to him, some of the ideas in that. And he kind of ended up combining two very different um, spiritual pursuits into this mixture that he had. But he, I think his main religion was was the compassion, you know, the empathy that he did project in almost all of his books. I'm trying to think if there was any where it didn't, maybe the hippo were, was boiled in their tanks, <laughs> the co-write he William did Burris, with William yeah. Burroughs. <laughs> but, you know, that empathy and that compassion, and I think part of that, again, was you know, the whole the teachings of um, Catholicism, the suffering of Christ and things like and that. I, really. And I, I don't think he ever really left Catholicism behind, did he? You know, even when he's writing books like Tristessa and so on in Mexico City, you you feel as if he's struggling with the Catholic-Buddhist crossover. But I think Catholicism continues to stay with him, doesn't it, until until his dying breath in, in 969. Yeah, yeah, he didn't go, you know, he regularly, again, I get to, I'm getting to read these journals where he talks about Sunday we went to church and da-da-da. So he stopped going to church um, when he was a young teenager, but, and I'm not sure how often he did go back, but as, you know, he does mention in his novels, you know, taking his aunt, I think, in On the Road, I believe he mentioned somewhere about them going to a church and praying somewhere when they're on one of their road trips or something like that. I'm blanking right now on the details, but it would come up that he would occasionally kind of do that. I don't know if he ever went to confession or anything like that. But, it, but. but it's interesting to think that uh, Kerouac was growing up in a community in the 1920s where the the French, the Canucks, the Irish, the Greeks dominating in Lowell, Massachusetts, a couple of hours, no, 30 miles from, from, uh, from Boston, isn't it? And it, it's worth saying that these people were outsiders. The, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant world continued to dominate in America. And if you weren't uh, signed up to those, those elements, you were, you were an outsider, you, you, you were regarded as someone who, who wasn't probably going to make that much of, of him, herself. And quite a few of the Beats were outsiders. Kerouac had those aspects to his life. Ginsburg as a second generation Russian, a person with left wing parents, communist, socialist. Uh, the fact he was also 
again, again as well. You know, the, all the boxes. Burroughs, not so much, though. I mean, Burroughs had his trust fund, didn't well, he? Well, he did have his trust fund, but Burroughs, in a rather grumpy way, argued that this was a very small trust fund. I mean, he he he, he had all <laughs> sorts of devious ways of getting money from his dealers, rolling drunks on the, the subway and so on. Uh, you know, so there was there was quite a lot of dubious stuff going on, to say the least. But uh, Burroughs hated, despite the fact he was part of the WASP hegemony, he hated that world. He he hated being associated with the American middle classes and the successful businessmen who had preceded him in his family. And uh, there, there are so many confusions in, in the beat psychologies that uh, it's little wonder some, their work is sometimes wild and... Uh, uh, passionate and and difficult, you know. It's 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 little wonder. How well do they connect in that that tr- central trio of the beats? How well do they connect in literary terms? I could see a sort of quite obvious congruence between, you know, between be, between Kerouac and Ginsberg in terms of that kind of well, the Buddhism and the sort of ecstatically religious apprehension of the world. You know, that thing of just getting excited. You know, the sort of Sunflower Sutra fits perfectly into to you know most of on the road. But Burroughs feels a bit to one side, you know, colder, more surreal, more arcane and harder. Is that is that your reading? Definitely. I agree with that. But the thing about them that made it, you know, the beat generation was that they would listen to each other. They would re- they were like the ultimate writers group. They would read each other's work. And even though it was quite different from their own, they would give notes. They would give feedback. They would give encouragement and support. All of them did that very much through that period of the years when they are becoming writers, when, you know, Ginsburg was working on what would become Howell it's, and The Naked Lunch, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Kerouac came up f- with the title for that book. So, so just that interaction between them, even though their voices were so very, very different, I think was you, you can't underestimate the effect that had on their being able to pursue they're very different styles. On the subject of style, I mean, you mentioned that first book being very different, being influenced by Thomas Wolfe and, you know, much more like a conventional work of fiction. Was On the Road, in terms of the development of his style, a kind of breakthrough? I mean, what were the stylistic? Obviously, we know notoriously there was the scroll and it was, as it were, all typed in one go in 20 days and so forth. I mean, was it a great breakthrough? Was it a, what, what new ground did it break? And, and were there precedents for it that he borrowed from? Well, it was a long process. I mean, the, on the road, even the scroll version, which, of course, was then edited, names changed. And, you know, the final version was quite different, you know, well, pretty different, I guess you could say. But there were so many versions as he was trying to find his voice. And actually, Joyce Johnson, a wonderful writer who was a friend of Kerouac's, um, a lover, and also much younger and very much encouraged by Kerouac to become a writer and to work on her writing, she really explores all the different versions in a book she wrote that came out about 10 years ago called The Voice Is All. And it was Kerouac really desperately trying to come up with something new. I mean, he was disappointed in the town and the city himself that he thought it was too pedestrian. He he wanted something different. And 
famously, the light bulb really went off after many attempts when he got this Joan Anderson letter, the name of this 16,000, 17,000 word letter that Neil Cassidy wrote to him, recounting, you know, this one night of crazy adventures of him running around and having sex with three different women in one night or something like that. And just that you know, spontaneous bot prosody, as we mentioned earlier, uh, that came across in that letter so inspired Kerouac that he really wanted to kind of capture that idea of trying to put down uh, sensations, thoughts, exciting adventures as they happened. And another friend of his also had even said to him, like, well, just keep a, you know, jot down everything that happens to you while it's happening. So he literally started doing that. And famously, he always had the little small pocket notebook in his, uh, on him at all times. And he would go through those and try to transfer that into the writing. And I think that was really uh, on the roads. It was, it was, he did it very successfully. And I think it really did change literary style that many people tried to copy, many of whom did it very poorly. And then even with Kerouac himself, he got looser and looser and looser as the novels, you know, continued to flow from him. He wrote, he, part of it was he just kept writing, writing, writing. And even before On the Road was finally published, which was many years after it was written. So I think that element of just go for it and instead of working on the same novel for 10 years or whatever and have that labored effect, but then also just his the characters that he comes up with and his excitement in the prose, as you mentioned before, were all new things that I think still are influential. And I think it's also worth saying that the Joan Anderson letter to, to which you refer, Holly, was it was like the Rosetta Stone, wasn't it, of, of beat literature? It, it it was lost for years and years and rediscovered about five years ago, finally fully published only a couple of years ago. But one thing the, the main triumvirate, Burroughs, Ginsburg and Kerouac, had done a few years earlier, I think 1944, they'd come up with this new vision where they all promised to write experimental work and all of them did pursue that principle. They came up with uh, experiments that were quite different. But Kerouac worked so hard at the, these these various voices he wants to find, stream of consciousness, sketching where he would rather like a painter or an artist try and describe a scene in one of his little notebooks. He had so many different voices that he wanted to express. And of course, On the Road also came out ultimately after he died in a very different version called The Visions of Cody. This was the book, I think you'd agree, Holly, that Kerouac wanted On the Road to be. And it was just unpublishable in the 1950s, not because it was libelous, but because its structure was almost impossible to make sense of. And and Kerouac wanted to be an abstractionist, which wasn't necessarily a form that was ready for the American public or the world's public in 1956-57. That structural thing, I mean, does that... Because one thinks of him as spontaneous, you know, as the... I I think Ginsberg says somewhere, Jack Kerouac's School of Disembodied Poetics, first thought, best thought, that it's just a straight flow. But was there something more cubist that he was doing, something closer to the Burroughs cut-out fold-in? I I think possibly so. I mean, I I, I was... uh... 
thinking about this just the other day and a very good biographer of, of Kerouac called Steve Turner. He wrote a, a book called Angel Headed Hipster and he refers to three big issues feeding into Kerouac's mindset in the late 1940s. He talks about Charlie Parker's uh, jazz solos. I, I don't think we've really mentioned jazz so far, but jazz... No, we, we the... have to get to that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, jazz is a very big ingredient in, in the mindset of these hipsters in the 1940s, but Parker's soloing style. He also talks about Yeats's trance writing. This is something I'd, I need to explore further. But the, the latter uh, item in this trio of, of influences is act, the action painting of Jackson Pollock. And if you put all those sort of ideas into the mixer, you're going to get very fragmented, broken, abstract expressionist work. And uh, it can be wonderful. It might it might not produce a whole novel, but uh, it can lead to incredible poems like Ginsberg's Howl, which are so fractured, broken. They're like a they're like Guernica. They're like a, a, a fractured, broken picture. The ideas fit together in curiously jagged ways. And uh, I think that's what's so exciting about some of the beat work that came out during that amazing decade. Yeah, though Howell does have a definite forward thrust, doesn't it? I mean, there's a real onward energy to it. I think you said it well. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I and just recently, actually, a recording company here in the States released one of the very, I think it was the first ever reading of how after the gallery six reading and it's it's it is amazing i again it gave birth to spoken word and you know po it brought poetry readings back in a big big way and of course speaking of jazz of course uh kerouac did that with readings backed by the great david amram who thank goodness is still among us and an incredible person who performed as a musician behind kerouac as he did his reading so Again, that musicality of Kerouac's voice is definitely inspired by the jazz music that he loved so much. He, you know, he loved vocalists like uh, Sinatra too, and he loved Elvis even. So he was he was a huge music fan himself, most notably the jazz and trying to capture that in his prose style. But he continued to catch on to all kinds of music. Yeah, it was, I mean. You know, it was spontaneous bop prosody, wasn't it? And sort of bebop yeah. was absolutely at the heart of it. I mean, what did what did that sort of music mean at the time that Kerouac was, as it were, championing, adopting, composing under the influence of it? Well, I, I, th I think it was very important because jazz was making a social statement around the time Kerouac and Ginsberg and Burroughs too. Burroughs was less of a music fan, but if we talk about Ginsberg and Kerouac, they were listening to jazz and jazz was becoming a signifier of black identity in a very interesting way. It had emerged as a music in the early century from New Orleans and still had a sort of element of uh, subservience to it in, in, in terms of its relationship to, to the white audience. Uh, the big bands had taken off in the 1930s and quite a lot of those were led by white musicians. But once Minton's Playhouse and 52nd Street in New York started to buzz with these radical new takes on uh, on jazz, generally referred to as bebop, figures like Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Kenny Clark. I think the thinking Ivy Leaguers, like Ginsburg, Kerouac, the, the radicals, the rebels, they saw in that music a sort of message of rebellion, 
very cerebral music. It was much less about dancing. It was about thinking. It was about the power of the black imagination. And it was a precursor in some ways to some of the the civil rights threads that would emerge from 55 onwards. So the, the jazz was a ve- the new jazz was was a very potent symbol of the change that was about to come. Yeah, and he luckily Kerouac, you know, moved to New York City, got a scholarship as a football player to Columbia, and which also provided him with one year of a prep school education, a senior year of high school. And he started going out to, he was already a fan of more of the big band jazz stuff, but then he discovered through a schoolmate the cool kind of outsider jazz, which was not accessible at that time or well-known or mainstream at all, and started getting into that. And again, he became a student of it. It was a process. He actually started writing reviews for his prep school uh, newspaper about uh, some of the jazz performances he had seen. And interestingly enough, another big impact on him was he was also a huge movie fan. And since childhood, he would go to the movies with his father, even when they didn't have much money. His father was a printer and would print the movie theater ads in Lowell. So he was a lifelong fan of the movies. And I've been going back and watching films that he had mentioned or referenced. And and seeing how, you know, trying to explore how some of these films that he saw could have affected him in some way. Is your sense that, I mean, that his relationship to black experience was one that, I'm I'm interested in where where black critics stand on Kerouac, because he, you know, there are some notorious passages that, again, look a bit of their time where he sort of almost seems to kind of orientalise or other or fetishise you know, black experience. And he sort of says, you know, I, I wish I wasn't white. You know, I, Negroes are where the life is, or what's, what's that effect? Yes, I mean, uh, this this famous passage from, from On the Road, I, I've made a note about it, where he feels as if the white world cannot provide enough ecstasy, enough life, joy, kicks, darkness, music, not enough night. It's, it, it's very vivid prose that Kerouac is finding. But what is he actually doing with that uh, comment on the Negro communities it refers to in the parlance of the time in Denver. And we've got to wonder, is he romanticising black experience? Quite possibly. Is he ghettoising it? Is he fetishising the primitive? There are all sorts of things going on. But I, I think I would say that Kerouac, despite these problems that we have with him 70 years later as, as, as a writer on these things, I think he was a warm-hearted once again, humanitarian. I, I, I think he wanted a world in which it wasn't just about blacks living a different life. I think he wanted there to be an integration. I mean, he, he has this, this wonderfully passionate relationship with Mardu in the Subterraneans. And obviously one love affair can't be the, uh, the, the metaphor for the whole of uh, change in American life that was hopefully coming. But I, I, I feel as if he was warm to the black community maybe overwarm in that he perhaps didn't treat their plight seriously enough. But I think we should look for the positive rather than just the negative. Yeah. And to finish off, can I just ask, you know, we always talk about the beat generation and beat. And I've seen, you know, at least half a dozen different explanations, even from Kerouac, of what the word beat meant. What's your understanding of what that, that expression means? 
I think for Kerouac, it was, you know, his idea of beatitude. And again, going back to what we're talking about before, that compassion, empathy for those who are beaten down. And again, the marginalized people, the outsiders, and you see so many of that, not just people of color, but due to, you know, his friends who, due to their gender and sexuality differences, um, and he was empathetic for people that were shunned by mainstream white America at the time, you know, when it was like homogeneity. So that's what I've always thought he meant by beat. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, when he talks to John Cleland Holmes, who writes arguably the first beat novel in, in Go, it's that's a, a brilliant affair, I think. But Holmes and he are speaking in 1948, and they've picked up this term from... Herbert Hunky, a, a petty criminal who inhabits the neon world of Times Square. And I think they're sort of interested in the fact that the lost generation has been described, the greatest generation. They're starting to feel how do they fit into this mid-century landscape? And uh, they do feel beaten up, beaten down. But then, as Holly implies, a little bit later on, I think it's fair to say, Kerouac finds that the word fits very usefully into beatitude, saintliness, uh, or, or, or the, the the urge to saintliness, and 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 so he weaves in some religious mythology as well. Uh, and I think also the beat. We cannot ignore the fact that the beat of jazz was in the hearts and heads of these people. So it's got uh, a sort of multivalent quality. The term beat. There's also um, that lovely term, a, a state of exalted exhaustion. Definitely. Anyway, well, that's our dead beat. Holly George Warren <laughs> and Simon Warner, thank you very much indeed for your time. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Sam. And Holly. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.